Well, it is uh, certainly good to be back here, Stony Brook Fellowship with our church family. Uh, we, uh, my family and I have been gone the last two Sundays away on vacation. The first weekend we went to Minneapolis with my dad, and that was a great time. We went to the Mall of America, visited a zoo, a water park. We watched the, the Blue Jays beat the Twins, as it should always be. And uh, that was, it was wonderful. It was a great experience. And we came back home, had a few days at home to recuperate. And then last weekend we were out at Grand Beach uh, with my family. And uh, that we had some wonderful beach weather there. Couldn't have been any more perfect. And as a, as a whole, we just enjoyed the time together as a family and the rest and relaxation. But I was excited to be back in the office, excited to come back and to preach, because I, I really missed preaching. And thank you to Emery and to Earl for just filling the pulpit so admirably, admirably while I was gone. And then I got into the office and I wanted to see, okay, what are we preaching on? And I opened up uh, my plan for the sermon series. I'm like, okay, what topic do I get to, to deal with today? And I said, it was death. <laughs> I was like, come on, who planned this sermon series? You know, it kind of took some of the wind out of my sails. I checked my notes again. You know, I'm talking about the, the fear of death. And that's not, that's not an exciting topic at all. And I especially want to uh, share my condolences with you, Sharon, on the loss of your brother, and I know that, that a sermon like this is going to feel very raw for you as well. And my hope for you and for all of us is that as we deal with a difficult and uncomfortable topic, that we will allow the Spirit of God through His Word to bring us the comfort and encouragement that we all need when we look at this head on. You know, death is rarely anyone's favorite subject. But it would be impossible for me, I guess unfaithful of me, to talk about fear and what the Bible says about fear without talking about the fear of death. This is something that we all deal with. It is one of the greatest and most common fears that we all hold. So with that in mind, I would just encourage you to pray one more time as we ask God's blessing on our sermon. Father, we want to uh, acknowledge that we have come from different weeks, uh, we've come from different experiences, and we just know that as we engage with a topic that we that we don't love, in fact, many of us might even hate and find incredibly uncomfortable and sorrowful. God, I pray that your spirit would be with us to guide us into your truth. Your spirit would be with us to comfort us as we mourn and grieve. And your spirit would be with us to challenge us when we need to be pushed on an issue that we maybe haven't given our lives over to you to this point. And so we do ask for your spirit to fill these roles as we explore your word together. We pray this in your name. Amen. So you might have heard the phrase, the facts of life. Some of these facts that are just so common sense are common and are always true and they're universal. It's just a fact of life. I don't have a fact of life to share with you, but I am going to prove some points through God's word by outlining some facts of death, which are a bit morbid, but it's just like the fact of life, but just on the other side of the coin. And these are not going to pull any punches. They're going to be very blunt. They're going to be very straightforward. For example, fact number one, you are going to die. Just hard. It's a hard individual, individual truth that we all face. Here's, here's a little lesson I learned this week. Phrasing is important, right? So you are going to die is a hard individual truth. I initially had written down you are all going to die, which sounded like a threat. I didn't want to live stream to the wide world. You know, it's like I went back to that. I was like, phrasing matters. I'm going to amend this just very slightly, okay? Just a little bit and, and uh, <laughs> mean something maybe quite a bit different. But here is the reality. All of us will one day face the end of our life on earth. Unless you are Enoch or Elijah, everyone dies. Or unless the Lord comes again, the second coming, we experience that in our lifetimes, then I will walk back on this fact. But unless that happens, and I don't know if it will, and neither do you, 
we need to acknowledge that one day we too will die. It's a fact of life or a fact of death, as it were. Scripture talks about the temporary nature of our earthly life in many different places. One example is Isaiah 40, verses 6 to 8, where a voice says, Cry, and I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And what the prophet is doing here is he's showing the permanence, the eternal, unchanging nature of the word of God by holding up against the very temporary, ever-changing nature of our earthly existence. Life does not last forever on this earth. And if we are to be people to overcome fear, one thing we must do is face the fact of death, even though it is terribly uncomfortable and grievous and sorrowful. Now, I'm not saying we need to be obsessed with death. I'm not saying we need to think about this each and every day, day in and day out. I'm not saying that, but we need to accept that reality in our life. We cannot and should not ignore it. Because avoiding the acceptance of death can have some extremely negative consequences. For example, if you're trying to avoid this reality in your life, it might come out in the way of of hypochondria, of being obsessed with all things medical, of doing whatever you can to just stay alive as long as you can, and trying to to put a structure of, of, of this illusion of control around it so that you don't have to think about While avoiding this acceptance could also make you avoid important conversations with friends and family. Things that need to be said, especially in a time of need. Uh, Things that are are conversations that could be life-giving because of how important this topic is to each and every one of us. And if we avoid those things, we will lose the richness of those conversations. Avoiding death could also um, result in not having our affairs in order of not having a proper will or not having taken out life insurance and have some extremely poor consequences for those that are left behind when that time does come. Lastly, the inability to deal with the topic of death will leave you unable to deal with it when it shows up around you. Because as we know, it's not always expected. can't always be glimpsed from afar. And not even talking to your own death, but even as it encroaches to those that we love around us, We need to be ready to deal with it. We need to be ready to have a God perspective when it comes to this topic. And none of this will be possible if we avoid it. Denial is not an option here, which is why we have a sermon such as we have today. Now, as I look at the world around us, I would say that our culture in particular has a very weird and unhealthy relationship with the idea of death. On one hand, we see this avoidance or this uh, desire to hide death from public view as much as possible. Now, at our monthly leadership team meetings, one of the things I find that happens often is I'll have these really good conversations with someone from the leadership team well after that meeting is over. Uh, one such conversation I had with David Craker a, a number of months ago, and he made a very wise observation. He said that as a, as a culture, We have taken the very beginning and very end of life and we've tried to hide it from view as much as possible. Where a a set of parents, a pregnant wife and and a husband could go to a hospital and then something would happen there and then eventually they would come back with this brand new bundle of joy and the rest of the family would say, oh, look, we have a brand new brother or sister. Where in the past, 
That would often happen in the home, and the whole family would be involved, and everyone would have a greater understanding of what the beginning of life looks like. Well, we've definitely done that for birth, but we've also done that for the last season of life, whether it comes from an aging parent who requires more care, we'll put them into a care home. But then that can also now start to become at arm's length. Or when someone becomes very ill, they'll go to the hospital until they breathe their last in a room surrounded by doctors and nurses, and family may not even be there to see it all the time. We avoid the end of life. We avoid death. We hide it from public view, where it used to be much more a shared experience in the home. I believe that to be true. Yet on the other hand, we have a society that also celebrates and portrays death at almost every single opportunity. We hide the reality of it when it touches close to home, but then in every other way, we tend to portray it ad nauseum. So, for example, when is the last time you watched a movie that didn't include death at all? When's the last time you watched a movie and nobody died or nobody was referenced as having died? When was the last time you played a video game that didn't include any violence or the idea of somebody dying? When's the, time, when's the last time you read a book in which this was not a central part of the plot that you read? You see, on the one hand, the world is saying the reality of death needs to stay uh, away from us, behind closed doors, but then we're so consumed with this idea because it's such a huge question that needs answering that it comes out in all of our stories that we read, all of the stories that we write, all of the stories that we live. So if we soak up what the world teaches about death, then we hide it from sight until we caricaturize it in other stories at arm's length where it doesn't feel so morbid. Truly, church, I believe this is not helpful. It leads more to these fears of death that we experience. And yes, I I, I said fears of death, not fear, because there are multiple ways in which fear can show up when we talk about this topic. I'd like to spend a few minutes here outlining some of the main ways in which we might be afraid of dying or afraid of death. And so some of you may not share all of these fears, or some of you may have different ones as a greater fear for you. I just want you to think along in your own heart, in what ways do I deal with this fear? The first fear is the fear of the way that you might die, which is often connected to the other fears that you have, a fear of heights, a fear of water, a fear of flying. I mean, no one's afraid of water because it's wet. No one's afraid of heights because it's high. No one's afraid of a plane because it's a plane. We're all afraid because it's connected to a fear of a way that we might pass away. But this fear of the way that you might die can also be triggered by stories and experiences of those around you. A number of years ago, many of you mourned the loss of a friend, uh, um, David, sorry, Derek Reimer. And Derek was somebody that I didn't know as well, some of you, but he was married to my wife's cousin. So we'd see him at family gatherings. And so while I didn't mourn the loss of a friend, what I did find out is that it triggered in me a response because he was almost the exact same age, married into the same extended family with a a child of of the exact same age as I did. And it really caught me by surprise when he got sick and then when he passed away, it it had a huge influx of, of fear and anxiety, fear of death in my life. I did not want the same thing to happen to me. It was a fear that was triggered by an experience of someone around me. And that's often when this fear will show itself. And so, I would encourage you to remember what we have learned. I would encourage myself to remember what I have taught. There is grace for tomorrow, manna when you need it, but not necessarily before. You see, none of us know the manner of our end. 
but we can all be certain that God will give us exactly what we need to make it through it all, all the way until he calls us home. So I don't know what journey I will have to go through the valley of the shadow of death, but I do know along with you that God gives us what we need when we need it. So please remember that promise. It will help us today. A second fear in this topic is the fear of a hardship for loved ones left behind. (coughs) That big question that many of us will ask, what will happen to those I love when I am gone? What will happen to those I love when I'm gone? My mom's story and her family included the, the loss of her birth mother when she was four years old due to kidney failure as well. And that she left behind a husband, my grandfather, and four daughters, age 10, 8, 6, and 4, which my mother was the youngest. And I don't know for certain, but I could almost guarantee you that she was asking that question before the end. What will happen to my family when I'm gone? This would have been a significant fear for her. But what I love about my family's story is that God showed his character of control. He showed his sovereignty in the midst of that tragedy. And through his grace and providence, then, my grandfather found someone to care for his daughters while he went back to work as a teacher. And wouldn't you know, through God's grace and through his providence, that one of those teachers that was teaching my mom and her sisters would take an extra interest in that family, not just the daughters, but also the father. And she would marry in. Her very first marriage, she inherited all four of those daughters. And she made that family a little bit more whole. And through it all... Part of my story is that God can take care. He does take care. He is in control to take care of those who are left behind. So don't let this fear overwhelm you. Again, remember God's pillar of control. But you should let it help you prepare. Because as I've already mentioned, I think it's really important that we take these practical steps to make sure that we do everything we can to care for those who would be left without us if our time came when we did not expect it. One very practical thing you can do is make a will. If you are an adult, you should have a legal, clear, up-to-date will in your name. I still remember going to a work party when my uh, wife was a teacher. We were sitting around with her colleagues, and uh, someone she was working with, another teacher, her husband, had just lost a parent unexpectedly. That parent did not have a will. And this family, which were all Christians, were at each other's throats trying to get their hands on what was left behind. And he looked at me and he said, you should always, always have an up-to-date will because otherwise it has the potential to sow division when there needs to be togetherness and unity. So it's not a fun way to spend money. It's not a fun thing to think about. But if you are an adult, you should have a legal will. Secondly, you should consider purchasing life insurance, which is the most unfun way to spend money ever. Here, I'm going to monthly spend money that I for sure will never see, right? <laughs> I will never experience this money at all. But it can be a way in which you can ensure that those that depend on you can be cared for if your time comes unexpectedly. And the last thing I'd encourage you to do, especially if you deal with this fear, to deal with it productively, live a healthy lifestyle. There's so many things that can and may happen that we can't control that we don't know of, but there are elements under our control. We can be healthier people. We can do our part to try to keep ourselves around for those that know us and love us and rely on us for as long as possible. So those are some productive ways in which we can work out that fear. But ultimately, we don't worry about what might happen to us because God is in control. A third fear of death would be the fear of the unknown. And this one is pervasive and universal. Because nobody knows for certain what happens after you die. 
Nobody knows for certain. It is the greatest unknown, and that is certainly frightening. And if you feel afraid because of that, I want you to know that you are not alone. The fear comes out in so many of these what-if questions. What if that's it? Lights are off. It's all over. There's just nothing. What if it's different than I believed or was taught? What if somebody else or another group was right all along? What if it's not as good as I thought? I had all these hopes and dreams and it turns out to be different than I expected. What if? What if? What if? And these thoughts, I believe, are normal and natural because of the unknown. The only thing that can combat fear of the unknown is faith. It's trust. We don't know, but we believe. We haven't experienced, and yet we trust. We haven't been there, and yet we lean all of our lives into the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And as Bev reminded us earlier, this is truly a way to fight fear with fear. We are afraid of the unknown, but we have more respect for who God is, that God is truly eternal, and he will hold us in his hands when we breathe our last. We place all our trust in him. And church, I have no doubt that the greatest act of faith is maintaining that trust until we are called home. That is how we overcome the fear of the unknown. Through trusting that while we do not know, God does. While we cannot see, God can see. While we do not have control, God does. We fight fear with fear. He is eternal. He is capable, even when we do not know for sure. Sometimes in a believer's life, another fear of death will be this accompanying fear of judgment. Even though we know what the Bible says and teaches, and even though we've, we've placed our trust in Jesus, there's still this nagging doubt. Okay, yes, God is real. Yes, he's to be feared, but I'm still guilty. I'm still sinful. I'm very aware of how imperfect I am. I'm worried that one day I'm going to stand before the, the judgment seat of, of God and be found wanting. This is a very common experience. And, and it is true, the Bible warns of judgment for everyone. One such example is in 2 Corinthians. I'm going to read it for you briefly here in um, chapter 5, verse 10, where Paul says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Gulp. <laughs> that's, that's not always a very comforting passage to read. And what we should not misunderstand, like having faith in Jesus doesn't mean we're exempt from judgment. It doesn't mean we somehow get a free pass and don't have to stand before the throne. Paul reminds us that that is not the case. We all must stand before the judgment seat of God. And this can be a very scary thing for all of us as imperfect people to consider. Yet in Christ, and that's the key, in Christ we experience our judgment based on his merit and not our own. This is where we need to redefine our thinking. We need to realize that we are not standing before the judgment seat of God alone. We are not standing there trying to defend ourselves, and that changes the entire experience. Another passage I'll share with you that Paul continues to, along this line of thought in Romans 5, 18 to 21. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, he's talking about that sin that Adam ushered into the world. So one act of righteousness, that act of righteousness by Christ on the cross, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, 
So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying that in Jesus Christ, he has done enough to declare you justified. He's using law court imagery just as the judgment seat is law court imagery so that when we stand to be judged based on what Jesus has done, he says, you are forgiven. You are made righteous. You are justified before me. Not based on what we have done. That's sinful. That's broken. It's imperfect. It's not enough. But Jesus has done more than enough on our behalf. I just read a, a quote by Martin Luther this morning that I thought was good. He says, whenever, the sa- whenever the, the Satan convicts me that I'm a sinner, I find it comforting because Jesus came to save sinners. Right? It doesn't matter that I'm a sinner. It matters that Jesus has done enough to cover those sins. And yet I know, I know that so many of you will deal with these nagging doubts and issues and fears of judgment. And that's because Satan is very good at getting into our, our hearts and our minds and our souls and, and deceiving us and saying, well, well what, shouldn't you feel guilty about that? And, and, and he sows all these seeds of doubt and he, he tries to make it look like it might be something that's true, but it's not. And I really love the way that Edward Welch describes it. He says there's two types of courtrooms that we will find ourselves in as we prepare for judgment. There's the real courtroom, the courtroom of God and his eternal judgment. Here's how you know you're in the real courtroom. You know that your good deeds are not enough. Your hope is in Christ alone for your deliverance. When you're convicted of sins, you are pointed past your sins and on to Jesus, not just staying in that guilt. And the last word is always hope. That's the judgment seat of God as described through Scripture. But here's the devil's counterfeit that he wants us to think is real. You know that you're in the counterfeit courtroom when the attention is all on your sins. It's counterfeit when you stand and fall on your own behavior. It's counterfeit when you think that you are all alone without an advocate beside you. And it's counterfeit when questions are raised about the extent of God's forgiveness. None of that is biblical. None of that is true. It's a lie. Don't believe it. Don't fear judgment. Welch ends by saying, Christ alone, Christ alone, that is your defense. And when that is your defense, you need fear nothing. The last fear of death I want to talk about today is the fear of eternity, which might seem a little bit odd. And some of you might not feel this fear at all. But church, let me be very honest with you. This is one of the greatest ongoing fears in my life. The fear of eternity. Because I start to think about what it means to live forever and ever and ever and ever, and it just freaks me right out. This happened when I was a young kid. Do you remember this, Dad? My dad's here today. I would start thinking about eternity when I was trying to fall asleep. I had these big questions, and it would freak me out, and then I'd run and try to sleep in my parents' bed. I needed some comfort. And they sent me back to bed, and, and, yeah, and I wish that was just a childhood story, but I'll still wake up Karen in the night sometimes and say, Karen, I'm overwhelmed by the thought of forever. I'm overwhelmed. I can't get it freaks me out. It's a fear that I deal with on an ongoing basis. And some of you, I'm sure, may feel the same way. But here's God's word of truth to me as I've continued to battle this my whole life. He says to me, don't fear the hope that you have. Don't fear the hope. 
Because that's another tactic of the enemy, someone who wants to deceive me, someone who wants me to live in this fear, who wants to take that one thing that is so good and true and perfect and unchanging and make me not want it anymore. What a deception that is. Now, church, this is the one and only time when I believe denial is the right answer to overcoming fear. Because here's the reality. Eternity, it's too big for us. We can't understand it. We can't comprehend it. And so if you're like me and you try to take this supernatural, unknowable thing and and fit it into a human framework, then you're going to fail. It's going to make you feel afraid. So what do you do instead? Instead of understanding, the call is to trust. Eternity will be good because God is good. Whatever it will be like, it will be more than I can hope or imagine. So instead of trying to understand something logically, I lean into that pillar of God's goodness. Eternity will be good because God is good. And God is good because I have seen him be good every way, every step of my life. And as you can see, whether it's the fear of, of um, how you will die or what happens to your loved ones after you die or the fear of judgment or the fear of the unknown or the fear of eternity, whatever the case may be, faith in Jesus Christ is ultimately the key to dealing with any and all fears of death. That is the key. There's no other way to overcome what we're talking about today. So I'm going to invite Chris Bachmeyer back up here. And a little bit about Chris. Chris is uh, not only a really cool dude, but he's a funeral director at uh, Birchwood Funeral Chapel in town. And it's also his anniversary today. Chris and Kari are celebrating their anniversary. So if you guys want to, like, give him a hand. I know. I know it wouldn't be easy to be married to Chris. I would, I would give Kari a hand, too. Um, but I've asked Chris to come and just share a little bit about his experience as he's walked with many different people through the valley of the shadow of death. What difference has faith made that you've seen? Thank you. Also, I think it's more the children, less me. That, uh, that this is the battle. Um, yeah, so Andrew asked me to share kind of my perspective as a funeral director and what I see uh, if, you know, faith makes a difference. Um, and it's kind of funny where Andrew was, was winding down here to the end because that was kind of my starting word. Uh, and the big word for me would be hope. Um, dealing with families with faith and without, I would think that's the most common thing that, um, that comes up. Um, when dealing with a family with grief. I mean, the grief is there no matter what, whether we have faith or whether we don't. Um, But dealing with families that have that firm foundation, you constantly hear about that hope for a future. Uh, And I think whether we have faith or not, we all would desire a hope for our future. Um, And likewise, dealing with families without faith, uh, you commonly see that not only the hope for the relationship they just lost has been broken, but that future is missing. Um, their future looks completely different, uh, and you see that that question get posed to themselves that, um, who do I have to rely on now? Um, I would say that that is a common thing that we see, and um, there's no difference in, in timing of death for that. Um, whether you're 90 or 60 or, or five years old, uh, you still see those same foundational questions uh, when it comes to losing someone. Um, kind of a second thing that came to mind as, as Andrew posed this question, uh, which I thought was interesting, and I don't know if it'll hold value to anyone, but um, 
sense of community. Um, when dealing with families that, that have faith, I think it's a common thread, uh, and this might sound a little bit bad coming from a funeral director, but families with faith often don't rely on us nearly as much. Um, again, a little awkward thing to say, seeing as that's what I do for a living, but, um, you know, families with faith, you just see that support everywhere. Um, and I don't want to, you know, pick on anyone, but if I can even pick on Andrew and, and Tim here, um, you know, when, when a wife, when a mother um, passes away, you see that community of faith come around them. Um, so not only do they have the relationship of, of their Heavenly Father, but the relationship of a church community there to support and other avenues. And um, again, dealing with families that, that might not have that faith, I think there's still a community around them, but it's not the same. It's not that, that same support system. Um, and you often have you know, families asking, well, well what now? Um, which, which we don't hear on the other side of the fence. So, um, and then to, to tie into that, then families without that faith component um, will lean on the funeral director more. Um, meaning not only am I a funeral director in that setting, sometimes I'm invited to become a counselor. Um, sometimes we're invited to become a quote-unquote pastor. Um, because even with some families without faith, it's interesting to, to sit down in the beginning and hear, nope, you know, we have no church connection, no pastor. And by the end of the funeral, you're being invited to say grace for the food or to give a closing prayer or something um, at the end. Um, so just to, to transition for one second before I turn it to Andrew. So this, this morning, something different kind of came to me. Um, and I want to read just a short passage of scripture, if that's okay, uh, and this scripture is actually a part, of, part of what I will be reading on Saturday for a wedding. And I think it's often kind of thought of as, if people look at this scripture, it's thought of a wedding kind of thing. Um, but it really struck me this morning in a, a death setting, if you can say that. So just give me a moment here. Uh, so it's from Ecclesiastics 4. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Um, so again, a, commonly a wedding kind of theme. Um, two getting married and, and that third strand being God. Um, but it just, it, it hit me this morning in a, you know, if we're asking faith and death and not faith and death, um, I'm going to put down the mic here because I need to use my hands for this, but I'll just yell. Um, so when people get married, right, we often, so the two are getting married and the three being God, the strand. And it just hit me this morning. So when people pass away in faith, Right? One is disappearing, but the Lord is still with the person left. And the one that's passing away, we know in Scripture to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that just struck me that that relationship is still continual. Um, versus, again, without that faith component, the Lord is still present in the life, but 
once death occurs, that person left behind without that relationship is left alone. Um, and that's not to say they don't have support systems, friends dropping by, family, but at the end of the day, without faith, you are going to have that moment where you're sitting alone, where there's not someone over for a meal, uh, where there's not a friend bringing you a cup of coffee. And to sum up, then, my perspective, um, the, we all grieve, um, but again, as Scripture promised us, we don't grieve without hope uh, and without faith. I constantly see that measure of, of hopelessness, I guess. And uh, that's it. I'm going to turn it back to you. Thanks, Chris. Thank you for giving us that perspective this morning. So, I think faith is the key. I think faith is the key to overcoming any and all fear of death. There's a few more facts I want to share with you that I think the Bible is very clear about. Again, fact number one is you are going to die. But here's fact number two. We're talking about your faith in Christ. You are already dead. Hmm. It's kind of weird to think about, right? You're already dead. Don't believe me? You can look to Romans chapter 6, and I'm going to read a, a select passage there from the beginning of Romans chapter 6. Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Skipping ahead to verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For everyone who has died has been set free from sin. Church, that's why when we have these baptisms that we celebrate, this person professes their faith in Jesus and places their eternal trust in him. We lower them often by immersion into that water and that symbolizes lowering into the grave of sharing in the death of Jesus that he died upon the cross. We have died with Christ. We have died. <clears throat> we have died to self. In 2 Corinthians, Paul describes it differently. He says that the old has passed away. You are a new creation. You, your old self, has died, and now you are alive in Christ Jesus. You are transformed into something new. You have died to yourself and your sinful desires and your selfish dreams and ambitions. They are gone. They are dead. And more to the point of what Paul was talking about here in Romans, you have died to sin. You were once a slave to sin. Sin was your master. But because of what Jesus did, when you share in his crucifixion, you have died to that mastery in your life. You have died to the effect of sin, which also means that you have died to death because death is the natural consequence of sin. So dying to sin also means dying to death. So I ask you this, church. What does a dead person have to fear about death? This is how you manage the fear of death in your life. You recognize that in Christ, you are already dead. The most significant display of kingdom allegiance is saying that I no longer live for me. I no longer live for this world. I live for a new master. I'm now a slave to righteousness. I, live for, I belong to a new home. My home is not here. I am heading that way. I am already dead. And yet... There is a third fact of death that is equally true, and that's this. In Christ, you will never die. So wait a minute, Pastor, you've told me that I'm going to die. <laughs> I'm already dead, and I'm never going to die. 
absolutely true. Those three things are all true because if we go back to Romans 6, and I only read a small part of it, we didn't get the full picture. There's the other side of the coin picking up in in verse 8 where Paul says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lived, lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, already dead, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You will never die. This is good news. In fact, I would say that it is the good news because in Jesus, death has lost its grip. It's lost its power. It's lost its dominion, and it's lost its sting. Which is why Paul, when he talks about the hope of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, can say these words. He says, For the perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, O death, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul reminds us that yes, we will once die. We will shed this mortal body. But you have already died with Christ and him is the victory. And one day, therefore, you will never die. We will put on immortality. All of these facts are true and they're only true in Christ Jesus. And as Chris alluded to as well, outside of faith, I think you have to be afraid of death. Without Jesus, fear of death is inevitable. Because then all you have is this life, and that's it. And this life is incredibly precarious. Without Jesus, all you have to defend yourself in that time of judgment is your own actions, which we know will never be enough. Without Jesus, how could you not be afraid? But with all that we know and hope in Christ Jesus, we should not be shackled by this fear. I want to invite our music team to come up, and we're going to sing one final song together. And as they come up, I want to remind you that our faith and trust in Jesus, when we place that in him, death becomes the last hurdle to overcome, becomes the last enemy to be slain, It has everything of true life ahead. And we get this glimpse. We get this picture in Revelation chapter 21. And that is a a passage I want to read for you today. So I'd invite you even now just to bow your heads and close your eyes. And you don't have to take my word for it. You don't have to take Chris's word for it. Here's the word of the Lord. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for these things have passed away. 